Eternal God and Father, we come before Thee again, realizing, O Lord, that we're coming to perhaps some of the most difficult parts of this book, some of the details and things that are challenging to properly understand. Help us, O God. Give us grace. Give us discerning, discerning wisdom to, to properly understand and then apply the Word of God. As we pray night by night, we pray for a personal application of the Word to every soul. You know, O Lord, the very needs, the hearts of each and every person here. And we pray again in your kindness that you would speak to their souls. Grant us your help tonight. We want this again to be a high point in our spiritual pilgrimage. A time when we know we've met with thee and you spoke to our souls. Give us your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We ended last night looking at the opening part of chapter 4 and recognizing that Jonah's heart was not in the right place. We could say that he's engaged in an argument with God, a debate with the Lord. That's clear from verse number 4 where the Lord says to him, Doest thou well to be angry? That anger is at the Lord. Again, we find ourselves perplexed and surprised. How can God's prophet be angry with God? And yet, really, when you distill down human experience, anger at God is at the core of all unbelief and all sin and rebellion. Backslider, you're in an argument with God tonight. Unsaved soul, you're in an argument with God tonight. Christian, as you wrestle with some part of obedience, you may find yourselves in an argument with God tonight. The thing is, you can't both be right. And when it comes to arguing with God, God always is right. We are always in the wrong. God has been slow to anger and merciful in His kindness towards Nineveh. He has shown His character once again, chapter 4, verse 2, again echoing the words given to Moses in Exodus 34, God is merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. Jonah is confused and angry, but speaks truth here. God was gracious to Nineveh's long-suffering to withhold his judgment, kind in sending Jonah and showing his grace and allowing the Word of God to permeate their hearts and lead them to repentance. You see, in my Bible, I can see Micah's prophecy at the same page as Jonah. So if you turn across to Micah and chapter 7, you'll see again that this is the very character of God. We've been singing this hymn night by night based upon Micah chapter 7 and verse number 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth dry the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. And again, the word mercy there at the end of Micah chapter 7 is the same word mercy we've been considering through this week. They said the covenant mercy of God purchased by the blood of the Lamb of God. It is that mercy that God delights in. 
God delights in mercy. But Jonah doesn't. Jonah's in this argument with God. He's not thinking God's thoughts after him. And tonight it is my burden that we leave this place echoing God's heart and delighting in mercy. Jonah's heart is revealed, and again back in chapter 4, in his prayer. We do see his heart in his prayer, and last time we noted that his spiritual health allowed him to pray in a manner perhaps misusing prayer. He, he is submissive externally. He uses Scripture, but clearly all is not well here. Verse number 3, I beseech thee, take my life from me. He's a prophet of God. He, he is given a life to serve God as God's mouthpiece. And we've noted in chapter 1, as he runs from God, he's trying to run from his duty. He's been called of God to be God's prophet. He wants to get out of God's presence. That's to avoid the word of God as the prophet of God. And now he's so disgruntled with his office that he believes his usefulness on earth is over. He no longer wants to serve God. Better to die. Of course, this echoes Elijah's discouragement after the triumph of Mount Carmel and Jezebel chases him, Elijah has very similar words. Now, I think there are very significant differences there. I've been preaching through Elijah recently, and it's not the same altogether. But still, there's discouragement in the work, and he comes to the point and requests for himself that he might die. He said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And I think that gives us a clue as to why these men feel as they do. Basically, they had an expectation of their responsibilities. Jonah expected to bring judgment, but was concerned about mercy. Elijah thought he was going to turn the world upside down, but things don't change. And so they have expectations of their service, and those expectations are not realized. Now, again, there are obvious lessons here. A results-oriented view of church and ministry will often lead to discouragement. And that's not just something that preachers feel. Members in the church, like I don't know the size of your church if you're visiting here today, but there are those and they, they seek to be faithful in a small church with a handful of people coming night by night on the Lord's Day. And there's, there's just a sense of the Lord's not moving in power. And if you have a results-oriented view of the ministry, discouragement can very quickly set in whether you're Elijah or Jonah. You see, our times are in God's hands. And it may well be God's will for us to live much of our lives in small ministries, seeing little things accomplished for the glory of God. That may well be God's purpose. And in such a purpose, our duty is faithfulness, without necessarily seeing great growth and increase. We serve the Lord. Again, do pray for the ministers in North America. Nearly all of our churches are really very small. And we labor in difficult contexts, generally amongst prosperity, where there are those, again, and it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. Do pray that God will help the men to be faithful. Faithful. And pray the same for your own ministers and your own churches. 
And so his heart is clearly revealed here in his prayer, but it's also revealed in the position he takes in verse number 5. He, he takes a position outside the city. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth. He goes out of the city, basically, and builds a hut. Now, again, there's various thoughts as to the timing here. There are those who have thought, well, what's happening here is Jonah's going out there, and he's waiting for the 40 days to pass. But I don't think that's accurate. The 40 days have already passed. He's already discerned that he's, he's, he's recognized. He is, in verse number 1 of chapter 4, displeased and very angry. As we saw last night, he thought the thing to be very, very evil. What thing? The fact that God saw their works and repented of the evil. And so verse number 4, when God says, Doest thou well to be angry? That's an anger after the 40 days of war and judgment. And so verse 5 then begins, So Jonah went out of the city. Again, we have to imagine something here, but I wonder, did Jonah at the end of the 40 days decide to himself, I'm going to take a look around the city. Perhaps a plague has come or some other form of pestilence and something's come upon the city. And I'm not aware of it. There was, there's, no, there's no fire from heaven like Sodom, but perhaps something else has happened. And he goes back and no, that doesn't happen. And he's angry with God. And he goes outside the city and builds this hut to watch. That's what it says, doesn't it? That he might, or till he might see what would become of the city. He's got this hut somewhat overlooking the city, and he's sitting there and he's watching there. Watching for, for what? What's he expecting is going to happen? Well, I believe, and we may argue about it, but I believe he's looking and expecting God to overthrow Nineveh. I think he's taking a posture, as Abraham was watching over the cities of the plain, so in the similar fashion, he's going to watch and expect that God will overthrow the city. Again, I can't go beyond too far in speculation, but I wonder, did he believe that people would prove their insincerity? It's a short-term repentance here. They're, they're going to suddenly go back to their sin, and then God will judge. It won't take long. It's a booth. It's a hut. It's a temporary structure. He's not expecting to be there very long before God's going to come and judge the city. Again, I understand there's speculation of this, but I think I can argue for it. It clearly says he's watching to see what would become of the city. He doesn't expect things to continue as they are. He's expecting a change again. And when the change comes, he's going to wait there and he's going to be watching when God finally sends fire upon this wicked city. That's his heart. He's not learning very quickly. Slow to learn. It's amazing. Despite God's actions, Jonah continues to expect God to come round to his way of thinking. Eventually, the Lord and I will come into agreement, not because I'm going to change, but because God will eventually do what this city deserves. And so what follows then, recognizing his heart is in this position, we, again, we see his prayer and his position, we recognize his heart is still angry against God's what we see in what follows verse 6 through 11 is yet another display of the marvelous mercies of the Lord. Three ways. First of all, we see the Lord's mercies in His patience with Jonah. 
his patience with Jonah. In verse 6 and following, we're going to see that the Lord embarks on dealing with Jonah's heart, teaching him and guiding him. Jonah has ran from God. Jonah has come to resent God. And yet, and yet, the Lord hasn't given up on Jonah and shows him such wonderful patience. He begins with a question. Doest thy well to be angry, verse 4, not with the rod, but with a question, such as the kindness and the tenderness and the gentleness of our gods. Patience. The Lord Jesus, as Jehovah incarnate, shows wonderful patience with his disciples. On three separate occasions, the Lord tells the disciples of his impending suffering. He's going to be delivered to the hands of the rulers and the wicked men. They're going to kill him. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. And then Luke chapter 18, on the third occasion, it says, and they understood none of these things. Three times. And at the end of the third time, they still haven't got the message. So much so that when the third day comes and Christ rises from the grave, they do not expect it and they do not believe it. The women come and there's questions asked. In fact, it continues even further in the case of Thomas. Thomas hears first-hand account from his friends, those he trusts, and they say, we've seen the Lord. And he says, well, I haven't. And until I see, I'm not going to believe. And what does the Lord do? He shows him his hands and his feet. He allows him in gracious patience to see. God is so patient with his disciples. Those who have been told three times, those who had abundant evidence in those early days of the resurrection, yet there are still disciples on the way to Emmaus. The Lord says to them, O oh, fools. Now, by the way, that's not a rebuking word. The Lord, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, you're to call no man fool. The Lord's not violating his own word on that occasion. The word fool there is, is really the Lord having pity upon them for their lack of understanding. O oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. That's the Lord's patience and His tenderness towards His disciples. How I many of you would rise right now and testify with me of God's patience in your life? Times when you look back, when you knew you were at war with God in your soul, and yet God brought some alongside you, a friend or a spouse, and they came alongside you and said, Doest thou well to be angry with God? And in the kindness and the tenderness of those words, Christ came alongside, and you were spared from a ruinous future in the kindness and the patience of God. How many of you could say, at times in your early Christian life when you were full of pride and arrogance and you believed in everything, and truth be told, you're rude and you're arrogant, you're obnoxious, unpleasant to be with. I say that because that's my testimony. Became a Calvinist by God's grace at the age of 16. 
and I despised anybody, couldn't see it that way. Proud and arrogant. I don't think I did justice to the Lord's kindness and the successfulness of the cross. I thought about who Christ chose to die for without exalting the glory of the cross. And yet the Lord is kind and patient and long-suffering. Didn't treat me as I deserved and hasn't treated you as you deserved. And see, we, we kind of get this. We understand the Lord's patience. And yet the question has to be asked, why are we so impatient with each other? We have this idea in our own minds that we expect sinless perfection. Someone believes in Christ. Well, that should be all their sins dealt with there and then. It wasn't for the disciples. It's not for any of us. And there needs to be patience in the church of Christ. Sanctification is progressive, and the time scale will vary from one person to another. Your wife may not be what you want her to be, but she's heading in that direction of likeness to Christ. Be patient. It's not fair to pick on wives. Husbands, you're far, far worse, aren't we? Slow to be like Christ. Because we're to love Christ. Or we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That's such a high calling. Our wives need to be patient with us. We're so slow to self-sacrifice. Elders in this church, sanctification is progressive. The Lord is patient with His children. You must be patient with the congregation. Slow to anger. The servant of the Lord must not strive. We saw it in 2 Timothy, but be patient. God's grace and His patience towards Jonah. Secondly, we see God's grace in His preparations for Jonah. Again, we're back in chapter 4, and I'm going to just use the words that are here in verse 6, 7, and 8, because there's a pattern here. Jonah goes astray, and then God comes and acts. Over in chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah rose up to flee from Tarshish. Chapter 1, verse 4, but the Lord sent out a great wind. Chapter 1, verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And now chapter 4, Jonah's angry with God. Verse 6, and the Lord God prepared a gourd. Verse 7, but God prepared a worm. Verse 8, God prepared a vehement east wind. God's at work here. God's always at work in our hearts. He's always doing all things to conform us to Christ's likeness. That's very much part of Romans 8, 28. All things for good, because all things make us more like Christ, conformed to the likeness of His Son. God never stops working in our lives, always preparing things. All this to deal with the problem of, jo of Jonah's anger. Verse 4 and verse 9, that's the connection here. Doest thou well to be angry? And then down in verse number 9, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? That's the connection. So the verse in between, how is God dealing with the question of verse 4? He's preparing this gourd. Reverend Greer and Mr. Stewart and myself, we had, a, we had a conversation about how to properly pronounce this word. In America, it has to be gourd. And Balamina, probably gourd or something like that. I have, I have no idea. But what's worse, I have no idea what this plant is. Again, you can read some of the great commentaries and they'll have different ideas about fast-growing plants. Whatever the case may be, please don't bother yourself about it. It was a plant that grew quickly and gave shade. Large leaves growing quickly. If you're a horticulture in some way, please go away and study it on your own. Don't distract me tonight. It's a fast-growing plant. 
that gave shade over this booth. But what I want you to observe, and this is important, it says in verse 6, The Lord God prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. What again you should appreciate here is this word grief is the same word that's used for the evil that God predicted would come upon Nineveh if they did not repent of their sins. There are lines being drawn in the literature here to encourage and see something. Jonah's suffering, but as Jonah suffers in the heat of the sun, God then comes in grace and prepares this gourd. And then a worm. The worm also comes from God, removing God's temporal blessing. The peace that was given from the gourd disappears. And it says in verse number 8, God prepared a worm. The morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And then if that's not bad enough, then God also prepares a vehement east wind, a fierce east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Please also don't miss the point. Here we find him fainting again. This is a very, very clever book. There are connections of thought all the way through the four chapters to keep the reader attentive, looking for the grace of God in times of need. But God is sovereign over it all. It's a tremendous insight into the human heart here. Our hearts, your heart, my heart. Jonah is so resistant to God's teaching. So God comes again in verse number 9. Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And Jonah says, I do well to be angry, even unto death. God is speaking to Jonah, rebuking Jonah, and yet Jonah is ignoring the speaking voice of God, and we are so, so like that. God gives pleasures to us and takes pleasures from us. He gives pain and can take pain. He's sovereign over all of our ways. We're exceedingly glad for the gourd and we resent the wind. And we don't see God in the wind, yet we're glad to see him in the gourd. We're slow to hear the speaking voice of God. And yet God is graciously speaking to Jonah here. Which leads to the third way that he shows, again, his grace not only again in his patience and his preparations, but also in his persuasion of Jonah. Is what follows then at the end of this chapter is verse number 10, 11, then said the Lord. The destruction of the gourd provokes one more angry outburst from Jonah's heart. And now Jonah will speak no more in this book. His words are done. God is now speaking, and God is going to persuade Jonah as to the nature of truth. Jonah pitied the gourd. Verse number 10, thou hast had pity on the gourd. He is sorrowful for the end of the gourd because of the benefits he received, yet he had not contributed to the gourd. It came and it went by God's sovereign hand. Jonah's response was excessive. Given how transient the gourd was, it just came one night and went the next day. It was so brief and transient. And yet Jonah had pity upon that. He, he sorrowed 
for the destruction of the gourd. Again, please don't miss a connection here. Verse number 10, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, and should not I spare Nineveh? The word spare and the word pity is the same root word, one word being the, if you like, the, the heart of the issue, and then the sparing being the outworking of that heart, compassion leading to sparing. Again, the same word being used here. We're meant to see the connection. There's a contrast here. And that's how God makes the argument. He contrasts Nineveh and the gourd. He points out the creation of the Ninevites. Again, the gourd was not made by Jonah, verse 10, for the which thou hast not labored, now madest grow, and should not I spare Nineveh. And again, the implication is that God made the Ninevites. They are made in his image. Jonah pitied a gourd that he had no effort to contribute to, and yet God made the Ninevites, and Jonah is arguing with God that he should not spare those who are made in his image. Indeed, he's arguing that God should not spare all of his creation. Remember the cattle again? Verse number 11, there are persons and also much cattle. Again, it is likely the case that God's creation is in view in the coming judgment when Christ returns. And yet we're seeing here an indication that God will make all things new in the new heavens and in the earth. God cares for all of creation. The creation of these Ninevites in the power of God, again, is sufficient, if you like, for them to know God's mercy. But beyond that, their duration is also seen here. There's a comparison again between the gourd, which came up in the night and perished in the night, verse number 10, and that great city. The duration. The creation by God. The duration. It's a great city. It's occupation, speaking numerically. There are more than 6,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. Again, we said recently or another meeting, is it children in view here, or is it referring to those here in the darkness of depravity. Again, the Reformation Study Bible says this, it's either a reference to the children, which would imply an even greater total population, or a reference to the inhabitants as a whole who were incapable of spiritual discernment. By either calculation, the city filled with living people was more deserving of compassion than the temporary plant that so concerned Jonah. They were moral agents. Jonah cares for a plant, but these are moral agents made in God's image and left to themselves. Without God, they have no hope. They can't discern the right from the left. They have no hope. Not a plant, but people. Here are also earmarked for destruction. The gourd, again, it is destroyed by God. It just withers. It's a plant. But the Ninevites... Under destruction, without repentance, we're going to a lost sinner's hell. Eternal destruction from the hand of God. Uh, going very quickly, but all those comparisons are given to us to lead weight to the argument that God has the sovereign right to show mercy. It's all to prove that God is a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. Why is it so hard to accept God's grace? You see, it is possible for a true believer to have an issue with the Lord's grace and a proud spirit. Oh, God can show mercy, but only the people, I think, deserve it. 
We don't want that sort in our church. We don't want that sort of sin coming into our church, being confronted with the gospel. They don't deserve God's mercy. God shouldn't show mercy to certain people because justice demands that they're immediately cast into hell. And we don't think of ourselves, we think of others, such as their sin, such as the grotesque nature of their sin. You know, there's many accounts of God's people struggling when they hear of very the most, the most heinous sinners and they're in jail and they seek the Lord and people say, well, they don't deserve that. There's a, a bitter spirit in our hearts from time to time. I know God can show me mercy, but there are some people, wherever they come from, whatever group, they're beyond the mercy of God and pride is the issue. We said this last night. We're not told how Jonah responds to all this. But I have a good idea. He writes this book. He writes this book to God's people so that they be rebuked for their sin, convicted of their rebellion against God. By His mercy to the Ninevites, it was, again, to provoke Israel to jealousy. And Jonah, in writing the book, gives the Lord the last word. I think he got the point. He understood there was nothing else to say. God delights in mercy. Now, in drawing these eight meetings to a close, I want to make two final comments, and then we're finished. This whole section, again, is to exalt the mercies of God. It is to exalt to our minds the God who delights in mercies, not only shows mercy, but delights in mercy. I'd ask you to think about praying this prayer with me. May the Lord keep me from a hard heart. You could pray that prayer for yourself right now. May the Lord keep me from a hard heart. I want to think God's thoughts after him. I don't want to resent God's mercy. I want to delight in God's mercies. I want to have compassion for God's creatures, whoever they are, whatever their sin, whatever their background. Nineveh, they were shown the mercy of God as a foreshadowing of God's goodness to the Gentiles. And I, I really want to believe in the whosoever of God that whoever comes to faith in Christ I will delight in God's mercies. We are to love our neighbors. And surely the height of that love would be to delight in then coming to know the Savior. But more than that, we're not only to love our neighbor, we're to love our enemies. I want a soft heart. I want delight in God's compassion. I want to feel the concern for man's confusion. Let's take verse number 11 regarding this matter of discernment between the right hand and the left hand. Dear people, we're living in days when folks have no idea what's the right hand and what's the left hand when it comes to God's morals. And we can see it. And there is a rightful place for anger. As God is angry with the wicked every day, so there's a righteous anger at the sin that we see all around us. Life is cheap. 
marriage is cast into the dirt. All manner of sins are being propagated in the nature of human freedom. And whilst we may feel anger, and yes, we should shed a tear as rivers of waters will come down our eyes because we keep not the law, we should feel all of these things. Surely part of our emotional response should be concerned for those who cannot discern their right hand from their left hand. Our hearts should break as we look at the moral confusion around us. And we can stand with a proud heart and we can say to ourselves, I know the truth. I've got the truth, and you don't have the truth. You're going to lost sinner's hell. And we can stand in the public square, and we can call out all manner of sin, and yet do so without any concern for those who live in such moral confusion. I don't want a hard heart. I want to feel confident presenting God's character, a God who is just and will punish sin, But the God of the Bible, who in sending His Son, showed us without any doubt that He delights in mercies. I want that heart in preaching. I want that heart in praying. And I trust, having come through these things this week, that's also your heart. That you're going to be compassionate, tender-hearted, Call sinners to repentance in a God that delights in pardoning the repentant sinner. But the other thing, as we close today, I am so thankful for a greater than Jonah. That's where we get to in the biblical narrative regarding Jonah. You get into the Gospels, and Jonah is used as a type of Christ, but the language is used there is, behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Jonah is is so like me, he's so like you. We see so many issues in Jonah's heart and mind. He's so inconsistent. Life is such a challenge. His heart is over the place. But Christ is infinitely greater than Jonas. There is a far greater than Jonah who came, greater in his compliance. Jonah runs. Jonah runs away from the will of God. But Christ Jesus, he is like David. He is David's greater son who doesn't run from obedience. He runs to the battle with Goliath and runs in that way in his will. We think of Psalm 40, Lo, I delight to do thy will. I come, he gladly come to do the will of God. Jonah's task, go on a long journey. Go into a difficult place and warn them of judgment to come. The Father sent the Son from heaven to earth to labor as an impeccable man among sinners, and then to go all the way to the cross. And yet the Lord does so willingly. At the very zenith of that confrontation in the garden, He's presented with a cup And he says, not my will, but thine be done. And he gladly takes the cup and drinks it to the dregs. He does so willingly. He is so unlike Jonah, far greater in his compliance to the will of the Father, that he might be your Redeemer tonight as the one who perfectly accomplishes the will of God to save sinful man, obedient 
to death, even the death of the cross. He is greater than Jonas. He is so much greater in his compassion. Jonah's heart is hard against the Ninevites, and yet time after time after time, we read of Jehovah Jesus, the eternal God incarnate. We read of Him confronting sin and misery and death and the devil and demons, and He's moved with compassion. His heart goes out with compassion, and dear child of God, you know that's true because He had compassion upon you. You deserve tonight to not be here, but rather be in a lost sinner's hell. But Christ was moved with compassion. Imagine if Jonah was judging you when you were four years old, or 14, or 24. If Jonah was judging you in those days, you would not be here. You'd be in a lost sinner's hell. You're a Gentile. You're not a Jew. You're a Ninevite in Jonah's sight. But Christ Jesus came into the world. He delights in the faith of Gentiles. Oh, not so great faith have I seen. Not in all Israel. He delights in his compassion as Gentiles come to trust in him. And he sends forth his apostles to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to Balamina with the gospel because he has compassion upon you. He's so much greater than Jonah. He is our glorious, kind, merciful Christ. He is greater in his confirmation. He didn't rise from a fish, he rose from the grave. He tore the bars away. Death could not hold its prey. The confirmation he has raised for your justification. You see, how can I stand before God? Well, the Ninevites believed God. They had a man that came a fish, and they believed in God. We have a man that came in the grave, and when we believe in him, we're justified from all of our sins, accepted and beloved as Christ has entered the right hand of the majesty on high. He's greater than Jonas. He's greater in the content of the message he brings. Jonah brings words of warning. Christ, yes, he brought words of warning. Fear not him that can destroy the body, but fear him that can destroy soul and body in hell. He brings words of warning, but he also offers words of grace. Whosoever believeth in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And what's more, Christ's words of comfort and content are so glorious because not only does Christ offer forgiveness. He has the power to forgive. He is so, so infinitely greater than Jonas. And that's what we're meant to see. We get to the end of Jonah, and we think to ourselves, Jonah, it's been a rough ride. And then we get to the Gospels, and we see one that is greater than Jonas. His name is Jesus. He is altogether lovely. And He can be yours tonight. Your Savior. Your Lord and your friend. I commend our compassionate Christ to your hearts tonight. Let's bow together please in prayer. Eternal God, we look to Thee. Use Your Word, we pray. 
thank you again for consideration of our Savior. May each and every heart be drawn to Him, who is altogether lovely, as we pray in His name. Amen.